book of Revelation, chapter 21. We're getting toward the end. Now, we worked through Revelation pretty well. There's a lot that's gone on in this book. As Christ was given that scroll from the Father, and as he began to open the seals, we saw things begin to happen. We come now to this chapter, and it's like, well, we've gotten through all the rough spots. You know, finally, uh, we saw prophetically that the enemy has been destroyed. Satan has been cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet were thrown a thousand years before. The saints have been resurrected. They're before God. Judgment day has happened. And then John receives this vision of the new heavens and the new earth. Pretty awesome section. So we've gone through the battle, literarily. We're still in the battle, actually, historically. So we're going to pick up the narrative at verse 9, go through it, and there's some interesting symbolism given, some pictures. There's a lot of different gemstones mentioned, and if you're unfamiliar with those gemstones when it describes the foundation of the city, I can assure you they're absolutely beautiful. And if you can consider how beautiful some gemstones are, and some of them are pretty easily identified, some of them are a little hard to, uh, to know what they are unless you've actually studied that area. Um, it's beautiful. It's a description of the foundations of the city. And so uh, kind of a picture of Aaron's breastplate, too. Some of the stones that are, were on the high priest's heart or over it are mentioned as the foundation of the city. So we're going to pick up the narrative in verse 9, because John has already um, covered the, the city and the glory of God and the promise that God would be with his people. So now we begin at verse 9 of chapter 21 of Revelation. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed in a, to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, 
the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophras, and the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray you bless us in your word now. Open our hearts and minds to it and open your word we pray by your spirit to our hearts and minds that we might behold wondrous things from the scriptures and give you all the glory and praise. And we ask this in Jesus Christ's name. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, whose name we pray. Amen. Well, we look at this, there's a lot going on, but it's it's pretty simple actually in one sense we see that there's the city in front of us it is interesting that it starts off because the angel says come I will show you the lamb's wife or his bride and then he shows him a city we saw earlier the the, the harlot of the whore of Babylon or the harlot of Babylon we saw that uh, this figure of a woman sitting on a seven-headed beast with ten crowns and she's dressed in fine array and you know royal garments and she's got a golden chalice in her hand, drunk on the blood of the saints, and then we're told that really that's a city that reigns over the kings of the earth, generally understood to be Rome, uh, Rome pagan and then Rome papal, but it was destroyed. We see the conflict of this, you know, we understand uh, Augustine or Augustine, depending on where you're from, I suppose, uh, when he wrote his book, The City of God, and he says there's really two cities on the earth. There's the city of God and the city of man. And we see this in our own world today. We refer to the city of man now uh, generally under the term of the you know, secularism, where people try to build a society and a culture and build their individual lives without any reference to God. Man is supreme. Man is, is in that sense, taken the place of God. And so man himself, you know, we speak of, you know, the, the reformers view, and, and many of us share that view of the, the papal antichrist. But, you know, as John says in First John, there are many antichrists in the world. That is, those who try to take the place of the Lord Jesus Christ, put themselves there. The word anti in Greek doesn't just mean against, like we understand it generally in English. Anti in Greek can, means in place of, uh, the antichrist, or over against something. And that's why when the Bishop of Rome, or yeah, formerly as such, claims to be the vicar of Christ on earth, that he's Jesus' representative, and you must be in submission to him uh, in order to be saved. And they haven't changed on that view, even though they don't uh, preach that much. It's still the official teaching. We say, well, he's Antichrist, because he's trying to put himself where Jesus is. 
Christ doesn't need a vicar on earth. Jesus is resurrected from the dead. The writer of the Hebrews where he says he, that Jesus has an unchangeable priesthood. You look up the Greek word there, and if you've got a strong concordance or you have a blue letter Bible app or something like that, look up that, that verse in Hebrews where it says he, Christ has an unchangeable priesthood. It means non-transferable. Christ doesn't transfer the headship of his church to any man on earth. Jesus is head of his church in heaven and on earth. We say, okay, so nobody needs to take his place. But sadly, and this is what we need to be on guard about. You can become a little antichrist yourself by just putting yourself where Jesus belongs. I remember back, you know, the, the four spiritual laws, you know, back in those days in the Reformed Church, we don't put a lot of stock in that because it's a little bit too uh, mechanical. And it's, it's like, well, it takes the work of the Holy Spirit a little bit more than just having you say a prayer. You can teach a parrot to pray. But God used that. There were people who got saved by somebody hearing at least the rudiments of the gospel. But the point is they, they had one little illustration. I remember, I think it was the second book, and it showed a little throne, and it had a cross on it, and it had another thing, and it said self. And it basically the second little booklet, I think it was the How to Live a Spiritful Life or something like that, it was get yourself off the throne, okay? And we might, we might go, oh, that's kind of mechanistic and maybe Arminian. It's like, no, it's actually pretty sound advice. Okay, get yourself off the throne. Let Jesus be king in your life. Let him be your Lord. Quit being your own Lord because if you really look at it, you're not doing that good of a job. And if you think you have been doing a good job, wait till judgment day and you'll find out you weren't. Okay, so the point is get yourself off the throne because if you're trying to take the place of Jesus, if you know what he has said and you're not willing to do it, you're just as much antichrist as the Pope ever could be. Okay. And who knows, God may be pleased to change the Pope's heart and raise up somebody to sit on the papal throne that'll uh, be a God-fearing man, okay? God can do that. You know, like I say, God likes to take Saul's and turn them into Paul's. Uh, I speak a lot against the Roman Catholic Church. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't be praying for the people that are in it, and even for the Pope himself, okay? Um, you know, pray, Lord, please open his eyes to the truth of the gospel. But the point is, you need to pray that your own eyes would get open. So here we see that John is going to go see... The, the bride of the Lord, and he sees a city. But as we see a city, there's more going on there because the city is made up of its citizens. You know, it, uh, I know, Jonathan, you've been to Paris, right? Okay, you, you can spot probably a Parisian, right? I've, I've been told they have a little a funny way of speaking a little bit, uh, a little quicker than some of the people that are out in the provincial areas. And same like, you know, we can identify people from Los Angeles sometimes because uh, I remember the first time I ever went to L.A., I was just kind of a little oaky boy, went down to Southern California and trying to listen to some of the Christians down there when they were talking. And I was thinking, man, they sure do talk fast, <laughs> okay? Uh, a little bit different speech because that's their city. That's where they're from. As Christians, you're a citizen of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. The heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem is glorious because of the work of grace that God does in the hearts of his people. So as we read this symbolic picture, and I do believe there is a, there's going to be a new Jerusalem. I believe that's our city. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, we belong to that. God's not going to leave us without a, a new home, a new heaven and a new earth. He's going to make those things for us. That's going to come about. That's what John sees, a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, and the former things were passed away. If you remember, that's how chapter 21 starts off, verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. But the new Jerusalem is glorious because of God's presence and because of his presence among his people. 
And if you notice before John describes the city, he describes God's presence with his people. If you go back and look at verse um, 2, John says, Then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The idea, just the beauty of the, of the picture before John. He said, what I saw was just glorious. He couldn't think of anything uh, that could even begin to parallel it in this present life. And then John, under the inspiration of the, of the Spirit, had come into his mind, I believe, a picture. Ah, John had obviously been to some weddings. We know he'd been to one in Cana of Galilee with Jesus. That's recorded in John chapter 2. And that bride was probably beautifully adorned. He'd been to other weddings, clearly. And he remembered, ah, wait a minute. There is an analogy that I can use here to describe the beauty. Because sometimes, you know, when the, when the bride comes in, uh, and people haven't seen her in her dress before and her adornment. The, you know, the congregation, everybody's supposed to stand when the bride comes in and they turn and you, sometimes you can hear people gasping at the beauty of what they're seeing. They're, oh, she looks so beautiful, okay? Um, and that's pretty awesome, I think. You know, that's the, the bride, that's her day there. And here we're told that he saw the, the heavenly Jerusalem coming down and the analogy that came to mind, it, like a bride adorned, uh, Linda, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What a picture of the church. It's bride, Christ is a spouse to himself by covenant. That's what a marriage is. Remember uh, the word wedding, to wed from the Anglo-Saxon, the word wed means to covenant. So a wedding is a covenanting. You enter into a covenant uh, with one another. You make promises, okay? Uh, before God. But she's prepared now as a bride for her husband. You know, the wedding feast of the Lamb we've read about. And then he says, I heard a voice from, a loud voice from heaven. That's so it doesn't get uh, lost. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. That's the glory of the new Jerusalem, as we just saw when we read the, the latter verses. God will be with them. It says the tabernacle of God. If you remember remember when Jesus was uh, asked for a sign early on in the Gospel of John and he told the temple authorities and the Pharisees, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they scoffed at him and they said, oh, for, you know, 46 years this temple's been in building and you're going to raise it up in three days. And then John adds, this he spake of his own body. And Christ was crucified. So the body of Christ, that is his human nature and his, in his incarnation, his physical presence, is referred to as the tabernacle also. It's the temple. Christ is the temple of God. He's the place where God is to be found. He is the place where the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, we're told in Colossians. Jesus Christ is God incarnate, or God manifested in the flesh, as it says in 1 Timothy 3.16. And heaven is heaven because jesus is going to be there and it'll be manifested and the father and the holy spirit's presence are there but we dwell with god and the tabernacle the place where we meet god always is in the lord jesus christ and that's not just then that's now also in john's gospel when he writes in john chapter 1 at verse 14 and he says and uh and the word became flesh and dwelt among us the word dwelt there in the Greek is literally and tabernacled among us. And what's that referring to? Well, the word became flesh. The one who was with God and who is God, 
he took on a human nature and became a man. He was manifested in the fleshy tabernacle. That is, his person was joined to a human nature. So Jesus has a divine nature. You guys know this. We've gone over it enough, I think. Uh, a divine nature throughout all eternity joined to his person. That's who he is. He's the second person of the Trinity. And he took to himself a human nature, and that's joined to his person. His deity didn't mingle with his humanity. He's not like a mixture of God and man or something like that. He is God 100% and man 100% joined together in one person. And that's called, as Eric Orr will tell you, what's that called, Eric? Yeah, there we go. Eric always reminds me of that. Okay, it's the hypostatic union. Okay, get an A for the day there, brother. Thank you. In case I forget, you can remind me. Okay, hypostatic, it's, that means person actually in Greek. It's joined together in his person. So he is both God and man in one person. So if somebody comes along, and you'll find this in apologetics, oh, you worship a creature? You worship Jesus? You say he's a man and you worship a creature? Say, no, we worship his person. His person is eternal, joined to his human nature. We worship Jesus Christ in his fullness, God and man in one person. We worship him with the Father and the Holy Spirit, okay? Because that's what the Bible says. If you notice here, we saw in verse 22, when John says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. You can't say that about a mere creature. The one who is the Lamb, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, again, referred to as the Lamb to help us remember that this is all coming about because Jesus took our sins on the cross and was there slain for us. He was slaughtered. In one sense, because of the injustice, you can say Jesus was murdered on the cross. What they did brought guilt upon them. Uh, it was wicked what they did, but like Joseph told his brothers, you meant it for evil, but the Lord meant it for good. Uh, so Christ was the, the lamb slain, and we're told it doesn't say the lamb slain by the temple authorities or by the Romans. It says the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth or before even. Christ stood for us in the council of God in eternity. Uh, as we're told, the grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before times eternal. And again, that's why I realized, you know, you've heard this before. Bear with me. Maybe I'm saying it because you need to be reminded. God has said to you, if you're a believer... I have loved you with an everlasting love. That means he didn't start loving you when you came into existence. He loved you according to his existence. And he's eternal. He never had a beginning. He's a different sort of being than we are. Sometimes it's hard for us to get our minds around that. God has always loved you. And he's not going to leave you nor forsake you. Flake that you may be, that's my hope, okay? I have to confess that. Flake that I am. God has given me promises. He's at work in me, okay? He's doing something in my life. He's saved me. He's conforming me to the image of Jesus Christ by his word and spirit working in me. And I can trust him for that. that as it says, as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, what, that he who has begun a good work in you will, actually that's Philippians, I believe, will fulfill it or complete it until the day of Christ. God started a work of, of grace in you that if you can say today, Man, I have a lot of struggles. I'm not what I should be. I fail miserably every day. I don't love the Lord as I should. But I do love Jesus, and I am trusting him. My faith is weak, but he's strong. My hand is not strong enough to hold on to him, but his hand is strong enough and has been and will continue to hold on to me, and that's my hope. Okay, if you can say that, then what he began in you, he's going to finish. 
He's not going to leave you. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We're reading about a city for those who have never been left nor forsaken by God. That's what this is. And so we see some things about this new Jerusalem. First of all, the first thing we notice about the city is it's beautiful. It's beautiful. We have a future, and it's not ugly. There's no sin in the new heavens and the new earth. Nothing there is marred by sin. Sin brought in death in this world. And death is an ugly thing. It's called the last enemy, we're told. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 and says, The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And if God says something is an enemy, you can be sure it's ugly. But it's going to be dealt with. Death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire. There's no death in this new heavens and new earth. There's nothing marred by sin in the new heavens and the new earth. And the beauty that we see there displayed is awesome. You know, in this world presently, by God's restraining grace, not everything is ugly. There's sad things, you know, in the creation. There's death. We see that. Death is in the creation. It's, it's a scary thing at times. But it, there's still a beauty in this world. The, heaven, the earth, rather, I should say, is filled with the glory of God, even now. And God's testimony and the, the power and his eternal nature can be seen in the works of this present creation. Anybody that looks around sees the order and the symmetry that we, we see displayed in the, the motions of the stars and the planets, our own earth as it you know, goes around the sun, uh, the day and the night, all these things. It's like God put this all into motion. And we think about it, it's beautiful. You see a picture from... Outer space, you know, uh, of, of back they take photograph of Earth. It's a jewel. It's actually beautiful. And this is a, this is a sin marred world. We can only begin to imagine how beautiful the new heavens and the new Earth are going to be. Premier, there'll be no sin and no effects of sin. Uh, I remember what was the old song about home, home on the range, where never is heard a discouraging word, and the clouds are, what is it, the skies are not cloudy all day. I don't know about the cloud part, but we're never has heard a discouraging word. There'll never be a sinful word or a discouraging word or a mean word or anything that doesn't glorify God. There will never be anything like that spoken in the new heavens and the new earth ever. There's never going to be a mean action done. There's never going to be a bad attitude. Okay, That'll be nice huh? to be delivered from that in others and in ourselves. It's going to be glorious. That's what, that's what the glory is, is that, that Christ by his blood took away all our sins. And that's going to be so clearly manifested there. Because the people that are inhabiting that new heavens and new earth, I'm talking about the human beings that will be there, were people that were in this world marred by sin and almost swept away apart from the grace of God. You know, worthy of hell and yet forgiven by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And those are the people that God has taken to this new heaven and a new earth. Those that are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, as it says in verse 27. And so we see, first of all, this city is beautiful. You know, in Psalm 29, too, we just read it this morning. Worship the Lord in what? In the beauty of holiness. Holiness means separation. That's, you know, the Hebrew word kadesh and the Greek word hagias both have at their root meaning the idea of separation. So when we speak of being holy, it means separated from sin. But as I remind you in times past, I'll tell you again, 
it's separated not just from things, it's separated unto. There's a lot of folks that have the don't drink, smoke, or chew, nor hang around with them that do part down pretty good, okay? Uh, they know what they're separated from. That's not enough. You have to be separated unto God. That's what real true holiness is. Being separated unto God means that the fruit of the Spirit is being nurtured and brought forth in your life by the Holy Spirit. That you want to walk with God, that you're, you belong to Him. You know, you can have somebody in a marriage that's they're, they're faithful to their spouse, and they're not cheating or being with somebody else, but they're not necessarily really all that attached to their spouse either, okay? They're separated from anything that would be immoral, but they're not necessarily joined to the one they should be joined with, okay? And that kind of estrangement happens in marriages. God can work you out of it if that's your experience. Communication, prayer, and just deciding, you know what? I'm going to start loving my spouse. I remember my aunt told me years ago, um, she said, you know, her husband's name was Hud, she said, I had a good talk the other day. We realized that for the last 10 years, we've just been angry at each other, and we couldn't figure out why. So we decided maybe that's just stupid. We should stop doing it. And so they did, and they started having a really great relationship. Um, and so you can be separated from something, but that's not enough. Uh, the reason why I use the marriage illustration is pretty clear, okay? Um, you can be separated from something, but you have to be separated unto something. Okay, you see that in marriage? Okay, we want to have good marriages where we love each other and are gentle, kind, and uh, you just go there for each other. And for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and do what? Cleave to his wife. I mean, and the two shall be one. That's not just talking about the physical act in marriage. That's talking about being one in heart, mind, in unity. Echad is the Hebrew word there, okay? The two shall be one. Same word to choose when it says uh, the Lord is one, echad. So there's that joining two. That's what it should be with us in holiness. That's what this new city is all about, those that are joined unto the Lord. And God's bringing that about in your life if you're a Christian. So don't despair. Just pray. Say, Lord, I need more of this. I understand about being separated from the world. I get that because for a long time maybe I wasn't as separated as I should be. And, I, you know, the little foxes spoil the vines and we still have sin in our, uh, in our flesh, so we have to deal with it. But God is good, and we need to be separated unto the Lord. That's the beauty of this city, that these are citizens of the old heaven and earth who've been redeemed, washed in the blood of the Lamb, and how completely they have been so cleansed at this time because of the resurrection where their bodies are redeemed and any principles of sin that were still at work in their flesh are gone now. In this new heavens and new earth, they're saved body, soul, and spirit. And they will never sin again. That's how thoroughly the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses those who come to him. And that's how thoroughly Christ's blood now secures your salvation. What's going on in Revelation 21 is not separate from what's going on right now in your life. You look at that and go, wow, I'll be sinless then. I'll love God perfectly. I'll love my brothers and sisters perfectly. They'll love me perfectly. We'll all be glorifying God and who knows what adventures God has awaiting for us in this new heavens and new earth. God's not a, he's not a boring God. Some people think like, you mean I'm going to be stuck in church for all eternity? It's like that's not quite what's being pictured here, okay? Or like the one guy came up to him. Nobody's done this to me yet, so don't get any ideas. But he came up to their pastor and he said, Pastor, I never understood eternity until I sat through one of your sermons. <laughs> This morning's scripture lesson was a little like that. It was somewhat long. I was looking at that. I write the 
things up and I thought maybe I should have maybe shortened that a little bit. But you know, we needed to hear it. It's all in one section. The point is, when we get to eternity, you're never going to sin again. Why? Because of the Lamb. That's what was referred to there. Because his precious blood took away all your sins, and you're never going to be troubled by sin again. This ugly thing's not going to be there. It's gone forever because the Son of God loved you enough to take it away from you. And he's changed you, and you will be holy. You're holy now in God's sight in Christ. So the New Jerusalem is a holy city created for a holy people. We worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Only the redeemed will be there, those elect ones that Christ chose and died for and brought into salvation. Secondly, the New Jerusalem is the place of eternal safety. Note the wall, 144 cubits high. The idea there, the picture there is that those that are inside are safe. Nothing's going to come from outside. And by the way, in the new heavens and new earth, there's not anything outside that's going to hurt them. Okay? But the picture that John's giving here, or that God's giving to John, is one of safety. This is not a city that's going to be troubled by any any disturbances. Its walls protect all within. Its gates, though open to all, will not admit any who are wicked or unclean because they're, they've been dealt with. They're gone. We saw there, there's there open access on all sides. The city has freedom. There's, you know, three gates on each side, 12 gates in all. So this new Jerusalem is a place of safety and of rest. But it's not an idleness type of rest. It's the type of rest where uh, you're at peace. And like, again, who knows what adventures God has in store for us. The Bible actually says, as you know, eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Then Paul does say, but God has revealed them to us by his spirit. That doesn't mean everything, because we're talking about eternity, all right? But it means we have a, a foretaste, we have an apprehension in a good sense of what is to come. And if you think there's adventures to be had in this life, beloved, get right with God, because I guarantee you the adventures of the new heavens and the new earth are off the scale awesome, okay? If you don't believe me, ask me, wait about a billion years and ask me about it, okay? Because I guarantee you, if you're trusting in Christ, won't have to wait that long to find out, whoa, this this actually is like heaven, huh? It's like, yeah, that's what it is, guy. Okay? Uh, when you're there, you're going to find that God has a plan for your life for all eternity. And he's eternal, so it's no effort for him to do that. So, you know, how can God plan something out for all eternity? He's a different sort of being than you are. So he can do things like this. Eternity is not something that he can barely manage. It's who he is. It's what he dwells in. Okay, actually, shouldn't even say that. God doesn't dwell in anything. God is eternal. He created the heavens and the earth, and he's going to create the new heavens and the earth. And actually, he's already begun to do that by the resurrection of Christ. As I mentioned before, the new creation has been initiated when Jesus rose again from the dead, never to die again. What's that tell you? He's physically part of the new creation. He is the new creation, and he will bring it about for us. So the new Jerusalem is a place of safety. And finally, for all the saved, it's home. That's why sometimes you might get a little homesick, or sometimes you're kind of disturbed, maybe don't know what it is. It's like you feel restless. I believe for a Christian, that's because you're homesick. I know when I was young, and would sometimes travel, go to camp, or go visit a relative or something, you're there for a few days, and you start getting homesick. Some of my relatives were glad when that happened. Would you like to go back home now? <laughs> uh, but uh, I had actually a pretty nice family. But uh, we get homesick, and as Christians, we get homesick for heaven. 
We don't know that's what it is necessarily, but as we get more familiar with God's word and as it affects our thinking, we start realizing it. Yeah, this world is not my home. And that doesn't take away from what you're doing now. That means, you know what, what I'm doing now in my you know, work or however I'm serving the Lord, and some of you are retired in my retirement, however, whatever's going on, this has meaning. This has meaning because I'm serving Christ, and it will. some of the things we're doing will have eternal effects for good, those good works that Christ is bringing forth. So we have this city. We get homesick for it. It says in Hebrews about Abraham all the way back, you know, 2000 B.C., about 4,000 years ago. It says, For he, that is Abraham, looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham had this hope. He looked for that heavenly city. In Hebrews chapter 11, Verse 15, it says, And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to return. Talk about the those that uh, left their cities and followed the Lord. But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. It's writer of the Hebrews, anticipating what we're reading here in Revelation. And then also in uh, chapter 13 of Hebrews, in verse 12, we read, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Remember, Christ was taken outside the north gate in Jerusalem. Beyond that is where the hill Calvary is found. Uh, and that's where they were, uh, crucified him. It says, But then the writer of the Hebrews says, as he was basically thrown out of the earthly Jerusalem, says, Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp. Sometimes honoring God in this life will mean you'll get excommunicated by the world, okay, uh, or false brethren. It might mean you're going to get thrown out of a few things. Jesus said, blessed are you when men separate you know, you from their company or speak of all manner of evil against you falsely. He said, you, you, you're blessed. That shows you belong to him. Therefore, he says, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. And finally, in John 14, Jesus told us, told the disciples, and they wrote it down so we'd have it. You know the passage. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. So if your heart's troubled today, hear what Jesus says. By the way, that's actually a command, gently spoken by our Savior, for those who are brokenhearted. But he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me because your Savior loves you. He says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? How do we, you know, do you know how to get to the new heavens and the new earth? Uh, you think about it. You're totally dependent upon Jesus. Okay? I don't know. You, have, you know, we build a spaceship. No, it's not been made yet, or at least it doesn't appear that it has been. So how do you get to the new heavens and the new earth? Thomas is asking a very intelligent question. He's not talking about the new heavens. And he said, Lord, we, we don't, we're not really sure where you're going. How do, we, how, are we gonna, how do we know how to get there? How do we know the way, the road, the path? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. Remember, eternal life is defined as knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. John chapter 17, verse 3. So we know the way. It's Jesus. He knows how to get you from where you're sitting right now to where you'll be in glory. Praise God. It's Jesus. So call on him. Say, Lord, I I, want to be yours, Lord. Please work in my heart. Sanctify me. Help me to honor you in this life, Lord. Give me that hope, as it says in John. And we know that when we see him, we shall be like him. for We shall see him as he is. And then John says, and every man that has this hope in him purifies himself by going to Jesus, I believe. Purifies himself even as he is pure. So it's a purifying hope. So may God be pleased to nurture it in our hearts and lives. And so whatever you're going through right now, give yourself to Jesus and trust him, okay? We're just passing through. Praise God. We've got a home we're heading to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that it's true. We ask you to seal it to our hearts. And bless us. We pray you would forgive us our sins and continue your work in us. For we ask this in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, who died for us and rose again. Who's presently pleading for us and interceding for us at your right hand. And who is coming again to take us to be with him for eternity. Thank you, Lord. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you. Father, we thank you. Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.